0: Yoshi, so good to see you! Wow,
1: wow, how are you doing?
0: Amazing! I'm doing great. Very how about how share. are you? How are you, my dear?
1: I'm tired, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm very excited. I never did a podcast before.
0: Well, I never did a podcast either with someone who was in Gaza for a month. So, <laughs> I'm very, very much looking forward. Um, so what I what I was thinking of doing is to just kind of introduce you and to talk a little bit about, you know, we're friends and you listen to the podcast and you spent the month in Gaza and you're going to kind of bring us there with you. You're going to tell us what it was like and you're you kind of give us as much of a feeling of, you know, what actually happened there. What happened there? What's it like? What's the spirit? What's the morale? You know, what is actually happening on the grounds for the, from the soldier's perspective? Um, and we'll talk a lot about, you know, different elements. I want to hear about the military elements. I want to hear about the kind of the camaraderie amongst the, amongst the troops. You know, what's it like to, to be on a knife's edge, to be in Gaza, you know, the, the dangers and, and the noises and the sounds and, you know, Shabbos in Gaza, Hanukkah in Gaza. Some of the things, like, what's it like to go in combat against the, against these terrorists? So the, 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 that's what I want to do. And then also hear more about like kind of your your thoughts, your feelings about how this will impact, you know, the general society after the war. You know, what what changes are you seeing in the society that you're sensing? You know, because it's a melting pot af- after all. The, the Tzavah, the Tzahal is a melting pot. And, you know, Jews from – even non-Jews from all different parts of the country and all different parts of the society and they're all together. And they're going through this incredibly – I, I would say traumatic, but uh, meaningful experience together, and that's going to change everyone's lives. So I want to hear more about about that as well.
1: Okay, how's the it, it Kiva
0: doing? <laughs> He's doing great. I told him about this. He's very excited. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to show him my gun. I was going to show
0: him a picture. <laughs> well, take a, tell, I can take a picture of that. Yeah. One second. You
1: got a big, uh, got a big scope
0: on there. One second. Let me take a picture for him. One second. Oh, there we go. Okay, <laughs> that's
1: awesome.
0: We got it. <laughs> and uh and the baby, right? Yisrael Meir. Yisrael Meir is a rock star, bro. Hashem. And those
1: are the only two kids that I that I uh, know
0: their names. Akiva, <laughs> uh-huh. Yoshua, Miriam, Shlomo, Yitzi, Rivka, and Yisrael Meir. Wow. And Bezat Hashem, one more, one more <laughs> on the way, Bezat Hashem.
1: Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> My brother had called me, it's a crazy story, I'll tell you about it, basically we left for Shabbos one week ago, Mm -hmm. that was the first time I left in five weeks, first time I was home in five weeks, and it was three weeks straight in Gaza, no cell phone, no shower, Um, anyway, so it was a crazy story, I'll tell you about it, but my dad ended up picking picking me up basically, and uh, it was like six minutes till Shabbos, he gives me the phone, it was my older brother, and uh, he basically told me that my sister-in-law was expecting. Oh, that's you know, exciting like, news. Yeah, well,
0: yeah. What about your younger brother who's there in Gaza with you? Is he, is he fighting alongside you? So my
1: you? younger brother, so he's in Shem right now instead of Gaza. Oh, okay, he's not in Gaza. Uh, yeah, he had like a whole story basically. Like he was in a unit, then he left that unit, was switching. And uh, he wanted to join mine. In the end, it's a good thing that he didn't because we actually had a set of brothers in my unit. And as we were getting ready to go into Gaza, they said, you can't both go in. They said they wouldn't take two brothers in the same unit and one of them had to choose they had to choose which one would not come in. After a long time they debated and then they both didn't go in. They decided to go out together. And then after like two weeks, one of them actually came. I guess the other one's like, okay, fine, you can have it.
0: <laughs> well, each one wanted to go or each one didn't want to go or each
1: one, each one wanted to go. Each one wanted to go. They couldn't decide which one would get to go, which one wouldn't get to go. <laughs> and
0: the army doesn't want them because it's dangerous.
1: Because they didn't want to put two brothers in the same yeah, unit in the together same unit. in inside yeah.
0: war. Yeah. Wow. It's 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 real stuff and this is real war. It's real war. Yeah. It's crazy.
1: You know, contrary to what they tell you, you no know, war is not fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not.
1: Yeah. Uh, um I'm not even like the furthest deep in. Like the mandatory conscripts, the guys in the Sadir service, they're like deeper in doing what's called the Tamrun, it's like the invasion or whatever and I was a little bit further out from them. Although my unit was the the most southern kahozal um, inside uh, Gaza, like beyond us, there was no kahozal more further south.
0: Wow! So you went by Wadi Gaza. You went across from from east we to went west from
1: like Berry. Yeah.
0: From yeah, yeah, because yeah. because the, they came on three different axes, like two, twice two from the north, and you can you cut through cut through Gaza. Wow!
1: Right. Amazing. I went on foot. There was no road or anything. It was just dirt. And then when I left, they had been building this road, this uh, logistics road, which is what I was doing. I was, like, protecting that, that road, which is very, very important. And when we left, it was, like, a road. Basically. I mean, it's gravel, but it's like a road.
0: So you went on foot? You do not have an APC, no tank, no nothing? On foot. Wow. <laughs> how, and how many soldiers are, are walking together on foot here across Gaza?
1: I mean, my unit, so my immediate unit is 100 guys. Like, there's about 20 guys in my team, 100 guys in my unit. But then we're part of a bigger thing. It's like 400 guys, part of a bigger, you know.
0: Yeah, like, uh, you know, brigade, division, army, platoon, right, company, exactly, et cetera. Exactly. Wow. And and you're not worried about – I mean, you, you just cross over into Gaza. There could be – Mines on the floor, there could be booby traps, there could be tunnels anywhere there could be there could be snipers anywhere right
1: oh there are there are <laughs> there are all those things um in terms of mines when we walked in, so we weren't the first people to, to walk that path. they already had like vehicles clear it so that there weren't any mines, and um snipers and all of that were not likely because of where we were. We had already cleared that area, but tunnels tunnels are a major problem. Um, they, they could pop up anywhere. Like, you, did you see on the news there was a mechablim that came up inside of um, a soldiers, like in camp? Yeah,
0: I saw that. That was that was crazy. <laughs> that was, that yeah.
1: was the guys right next to me. Are you I serious? Was meters away from them. Yeah. So, well,
0: yeah. I, so, let me describe uh, the what I saw. You see, like a it looks like it's a periscope. It's a little camera coming out. Yeah, yeah. And it does a little rotation, and you see soldiers. Everyone, you see soldiers. You know, a few feet away, and that was that was a video recorded by. By Hamas? By Hamas. Wow. So why didn't they attack? Or did they?
1: So at that point, they hadn't finished digging yet. They just dug and then stuck that little camera up. And then they didn't attack yet. I don't don't know why they didn't attack right there, like finish digging. Or maybe they wanted to wait. I I, I don't know. (laughs) Wow. But uh, it was pretty crazy.
0: Wow. Well, Yoshi, let me introduce you. And I think we'll just keep this part in the podcast. It's going to be a fun conversation. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce my friend, uh, Yoshi Rosenbluth. He's a dear friend, a long time listener of the podcasts, an IDF sharpshooter who spent a month in Gaza. Uh, like you said, it was a month with no showers, no cell phone, and you're at war, and war is not fun. It's glamorized, of course, by, by the movies. And I have to say, it does, it does feel a little bit glamorous, you know, because you're there and you're fighting and your life is really meaningful. It's, it's terrifying. It's dangerous and you never know if you'll make it to the next day. But there's something very powerful about being someone who is doing something to save and to protect and to guard the homeland and to guard the Jewish people and the Jewish state. So that, that, that is beautiful, even though it's not glamorous. And we're going to talk today, please God, about the uh, military aspects of the war. But really, I want to get a sense of what it's like on the ground, what it's like with the soldiers in the tanks, in the APCs, in the units, in Gaza, surrounded by a hornet's nest of terrorists, what things are like. And I want to start off by thanking you. I I think on behalf of Torch, of course, but it's really representing all of us. You're, You're one of the listeners. And you're there on the ground. I want to tell you that you're representing all of us. And we want to thank you. We appreciate what you're doing. We love you. And you warriors on the ground in Gaza, you're the real heroes protecting our communities, protecting the Medina, the state, protecting the innocent Jews. And I want to start off just by thanking you on behalf of all of us at Torch and across the entire broad distributed Torch family across the world.
1: Thank you, Rav. That means a great deal to me. And I, I want to—I well, mean, I want to share everything with you, honestly. But uh, I'll introduce myself real quick. I'm a longtime listener, and uh, your podcasts have been an enormous influence on my life and my afterlife. I—I <laughs> um, I was born in Baltimore, and I moved to Israel about 11 years ago. I was 15, and um, my life is a big roller coaster. I went to a bunch of schools, and uh, I ended up joining the army. Um, I got into a special unit, and uh, I was in the Army about three years and three months. I did a little bit of extra time. I'd gotten injured in the middle, and um, after the Army, I I finished in February of 2020. My friends and I did a little trip to Bulgaria, went snowboarding. It was really fun, and then I went to America for a wedding for a childhood friend of mine for three weeks, round-trip ticket three weeks, March 2020. A week later, COVID hit, return flight canceled. I spent a year and a half in America. And uh, during that time, I was doing all kinds of jobs, you know, and uh, I was doing landscaping for one of my like childhood friends. And so I was wearing my headphones about 11 hours a day. And then instead of music, I started listening to podcasts and I like history. So I found a podcast called Famous Figures, which is with all kinds of famous people throughout history. And then I'm like, after about 40 hours, I'm like, let me try to find something Jewish. And that's when I found the Jewish History Podcast. I plowed through that podcast and then Torah 101. Anyway, about 400 hours of podcasts later, I find myself in Nation of Torah and the Foundations Program, which absolutely, absolutely changed my life and my afterlife, like I said mm-hmm. earlier. But uh, but it really started with your podcast. I'm what they call FFB, you know, from, from birth. But it turns out that there was a lot of foundational stuff that I was missing. Uh, for example, you mentioned how the mission is the oral Torah written down. And that may be obvious or common knowledge, but I didn't know that, (laughs) you know, and I'm like, I have I have a lot of catching up to do. You know, I'm just the kind of person that I have to know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And uh, I I had to understand, is this real? Is this true? By this, I mean what we call God in Torah, Judaism. And that's where Torah 101 really comes in, by the way. Um, So I joined the foundations program, which I got very, very, very good explanations to my questions And, um, my, my life has been totally, totally different since, since joining Aish, um, about, and I continued with the podcast, of course, about a thousand hours of podcast later, I became the Madriach of that program that I'd started in. And, uh, my little brother, David, he started listening to the podcast as well. And, um, he's now in Aisha Torah also. (laughs) Um, you've been a big influence on us basically. And so it's really cool for me to be here with you. Um, well, after, we a hours, after a thousand hours, after a thousand hours of yeah.
0: listening to the podcast, now you're on the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, it's,
1: yes. it's really cool. I'm very excited.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, we did get. To, yeah. To, yeah, we did get that. We did get to meet face to face. Yeah, tell tell us that story.
1: So I had met some of your nephews, basically or a good friend of mine from yeshiva. His name is Dovi. So um, he's brother in laws with your brother, and. Um, I met through him a couple of your nephews, and then I go to a wedding by, for Robert Rossman's daughter, who's um, who's the head of age, and, um, and I see one of your nephews, I'm like, hey, what are you doing here? He's like, what do you mean? It's my brother's wedding. I'm like, what? So I'm like, wait a minute, is Rabbi Yaakov here? He's like, yeah, sure. And he points to this guy who's got his back towards me, he taps him on the back, and then you turn around, you look at me, and the first time you ever seen me, and you go, Yoshi, <laughs> and I guess you <laughs> recognize me just from the WhatsApp picture. <laughs> um, cause you had sent me a message, which I, I didn't mention that earlier, but, um, uh, you sent me a WhatsApp message um, cause my brother learned next to your brother and told your brother that I listened to your podcast, who told you, who sent you my number. Anyway, it really, it, made, it meant a really great deal to me. And, uh, it was very cool for me to meet you. After that, we, I ended up coming to your other nephew's wedding and, uh, I juggled at the weddings and, uh, it was really, it was really great.
0: Well, uh, our lives now are intertwined. And uh thank you for sharing that and thank you for joining the podcast. I'm very excited to to hear your story. Um, okay, so let's let's jump in. Let's dive into Gaza. You know, I, I think a lot of us in America and really, I guess broadly around the world, we feel like our hearts are really in Israel. You know, our hearts are in Israel. We should really be there. We feel maybe a little bit guilty about not being there, but certainly it's dominating our thoughts, our minds, our prayers. And we're constantly thinking about what's happening. And we're reading all the news. And I, I have a thing now I'm watching. There was a lot of Israeli television on YouTube to get a sense of what's actually happening on the ground. We're there in hearts and in spirit. But we're still distant. And I I thought it would be helpful for us to get a sense of what it's actually like on the ground, in the battles, in Gaza, from someone who spent a long time there. So tell us what it's like. And let's start from the beginning. Of course, October 7th, uh, horrific, brutal massacre that happened. You know, we, for us, it was Simchas Torah. So we have, it was on Saturday, of course, Shabbos. And then we had Sunday as well was Yom Tov for those of us in the diaspora. But you were there. You know, you're in Israel. I'm sure you're hearing about it already on Shabbos morning. Uh, I texted you on 10-11. I looked back 10-11. So that's what, four days later. And you told me, I'm in the South. So you were already in the South. So tell us what happened, you know, where you were when you heard about this and when you, you know, kind of went uh, to the South.
1: So I woke up on Shabbos, on Semchast Torah, and apparently there were sirens going off in the old city. And then I see my officer calling me. And I didn't answer because it was Shabbos and he's not religious. I figured he just heard there were sirens in, in the old city. And so he was calling to see that I'm okay. So I didn't answer I go to yeshiva and I thought it was kind of strange that there's sirens because there's, there's never sirens over there pretty much, and um, and I get to yeshiva and people start like whispering like oh I heard from a security guard that something happened I heard this and um, they start giving me these ridiculous numbers like people like Yoshi and they always come to me because they know that I was the guy in the, I'm again the yeshiva who was in the army and uh, so they always come to me with this kind of news and he's like yeah I heard there were like two hundred people killed and I'm like what no, <laughs> there's no way. He's like, yeah, yeah, I heard there were 500 people killed. And I'm like, I literally thought they were, they were totally making this up. Uh, it just sounded so unbelievable. And uh, and then I started hearing from several different people, all kinds of just crazy numbers that to me were literally impossible. Like you're talking like 400 killed and 100 kidnapped. And I'm like, there's no like that's not something that doesn't happen over here. There's no such thing as, as numbers like that. But uh, after a few people were giving me these crazy numbers, I realized that even if it's a fraction of the numbers that they're telling me, we're at war already. If there are civilians captured, we're, we're already at war and I'm a combat soldier, you know, with or without my uniform, I'm a combat soldier. That's who I am. You know, I'm a yeshiva bacher and I'm a combat soldier and I have responsibility. So I went over to um, Rav Noah Weinberg's son, actually, who was there, Rav Yehuda, who was at yeshiva at the time. And I told him about the situation. He told me, go get your phone. You need to, you need to go speak to your officer. So I grabbed my phone and uh, I called my officer basically. And they said, like, everybody on the phone talking very rushed, you know. He's like, just have your phone with you. We're going to call you guys soon. So um, I have my, this is on Shabbos. I have my cell phone. I have my cell radio. I've got my handgun. I got a spare magazine. <laughs> All of this is like on my pants and my pockets. Um, I woke up my brother, who's also a combat soldier. He was a commander in paratroopers. I told him, listen, I don't know exactly what's going down, but something really serious happened, and we're probably at war. Like, get ready. And, uh, basically, they ended up calling us. So after Shabbos, we actually made it through the whole Shabbos, and I'll share with you an experience actually that, uh, happened at Yeshiva. There were people there from America. There was actually, um, there was a guy who was, who was in from America. One of his sons was in the army. Another one of his sons was in a camp that I had worked at in the summer. And um the son that was in the army got called up right away on Shabbos. And I was watching. I was kind of like the fly on the wall. This wasn't even my business. But I watched as this father hugged his son to go to war. And uh, I mean, I'll never forget this. And I'll never forget... Th- like, like, I was holding back tears. I felt my, my throat, you know, just watching this. And the son is like, nervous, but excited. And, you know, when you're in the army, we talk about war all the time. It's what we're training for. It's what we're meant to be doing, you know? And, uh, for the father, it was a whole other experience also. The kid, you know, he was saying goodbye to his son and not knowing when he'll see him again or where he's going to be, what kind of danger he's going to be in. And I was there on the side, like, watching it. And, uh, after the son walked away, I saw the father try to find a little corner where he could just, you know, speak to Hashem. like what he wanted. And it was hard to find because it's a party; and everybody's dancing. And uh, I mean, I'll never forget his face, honestly. But I actually saw that same face a second time from my own father when he said goodbye to me. Um, because that basically right after Shabbos, uh, my brother and I got our stuff together really quickly, hopped in the car. We drove to my parents' house. We live in the Shomron we prepared all of our combat gear because we've got all kinds of stuff at home that we've saved up um and we're like dividing up the gear because we shared it all so we're like all right you get the mask i'll get the magazine you get the handle i'll get the flashlight and uh they basically told us they had us waiting until about one o'clock in the morning and they told us to be at a base down south by 'er Beresheva by 7 a.m and uh i'm sorry by 6 a.m 6 a.m they wanted us to be down south which is like not even possible, basically. Like, if I had a car, I'd have had to leave at like 4.30 in the morning. And I didn't have a car. <laughs> so, uh, first thing in the morning, I got there as fast as I can. And it was just, it was quick. I mean, we get there. We sign for gear. We all say hi to each other. Like, my team is, my team is very close to each other. We, to be in my unit, we had to do 14 months of training together. Plus, we had to pass like, um, like a hell week to get into the unit. And, uh, we spent two and a half years together. We, we did arrests, arrests together, and we risked our lives together. So we're very, very close, and uh, we all see each other. And it's like we're happy to see each other, but we're very sad that it's under these circumstances.
0: I know you've met a few um, times since your mandatory service. You've met in Miloim, right, in reserve duty as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like one yeah. month a year? Is that one month a year that you get together with them? Uh,
1: so we did one, yeah, we did one month um, in Gush And we also do these one-day Um, Trainings where we'll do shooting, urban warfare, uh, bravmagai, and um, and like first aid, basically, just to keep because you have to really stay sharp a little bit. Um, So we sign for our gear, we get our vests and we get our guns and everything. And next thing you know, we're we're going out to a place called Yachini, which is like a Yeshuv down south, one of the Yeshuvim that was attacked Um,
0: at the time. There's still uh, terrorist infiltrators.
1: That, that's why they sent us. Our job was basically to, to find and deal with any terrorists who are wandering around down there. So we spent a whole week just out in the Shetach, like no tent, no, no nothing. Like we, we stayed in our vest. We slept just on the floor, just like that <laughs> in our vests. And, uh, we were there for a whole week and it was, it was really crazy because in terms of the army, the army had taken such a rough blow that it wasn't functioning properly. Uh, the Southern Command had basically fallen. Uh, in terms of food, we didn't. We, we got what's called manakin, which is just a, like boxes with a bunch of like cans, canned tuna and and um, corn, um, and that was it. Beside for that though, we got people driving down, civilians driving down, giving us care packages. That was like it was the most unbelievable thing. They bring us hot food and protein bars and socks.
0: And, and that happened right away. Just, that happened right away.
1: Where the yeah, right the away, civilian
0: right population away. just filled right in. Away. Yeah.
1: Right away, everybody everybody just kicked into gear, got together, and did anything and everything that they could. Which is really crazy, because right before the war, with the political situation, regarding the judicial reform, there was terrible, terrible strife. I, I had never seen, I've been in Israel 11 years, I had never seen this kind of uh, strife inside Israel. Um, to me, it was, it was, I mean, it was very hurtful to me, like painful for me to see the Jews in such bad terms with each other. I grew up in a house. that's very Zionistic, very proud to be Jewish. Uh, we come from Holocaust survivors and, uh, to, to see, to see Jews that, that were, that were, I mean, I don't know how to describe it even, but it was very painful. And, uh, if we look throughout history, by the way, and, uh, from, from your podcast, the Jewish history podcast, also from one of my teachers, Rabbi Ken Spiro, he shows this a lot, how, um, when, when the Jews rebel against God, he's, he's usually patient with us. He gives us a lot of time. But when we fight amongst each other, he is not patient for that. And he sends in an external enemy to remind us that we are actually a family and we have to stick together. A good analogy would be if a child rebels against the parent, it's painful. But for a parent to see the children fighting amongst each other, that's when their heart is really torn in half. And, uh, and so I'm not, I'm not surprised that this, I mean, of the, the scope of it, the magnitude, I'm totally shocked. But the fact that we were attacked, um, I wasn't surprised because I had said to people even before that, I'm like, we got to get our stuff together because otherwise we're going to have to the hard way. And uh, unfortunately, that's what we're seeing. But hopefully, please God, we will come out of it stronger and more united. And uh, this is something that I'm definitely experiencing, at least in the army. Um in my team alone, we've got at least four different languages We've got religious, not religious. We've got olim chadashim. We've got whatever it is you can think of. We've got it. And we all love each other. We're, we all get along. One of, my, one of my best friends in my team, actually, he grew up also in the south, in Otefaza. He's he's His yeshuv is mefune. they They can't even be there. They've been evacuated. Which one's that? When he leaves, um, kibbutz gevim. Okay. And he, he actually shared with us today. He says, I don't know where I'm going after we leave. He's like he doesn't have a home to go to. Go to. Um, so anyway, he he actually said to me, um, was,
0: "Was he there on October seventh? Uh,
1: was that? Was he there? He was up north. He was up north. he was up north in uh, university. That th- his kibbutz actually was not attacked. Thankfully, there was basically a shootout um, at the entrance of the yeshuv, and then the the terrorists drove to a, to an easier target, and uh, and they were all okay. Although I'm sure there's damage from the rockets and the mortar bombs. Uh, but he actually said something very, very powerful to me, um, especially this was actually a few months before. But uh, the judicial reform was, was a big mess. And he said to me, he's like, because he comes from a very, very secular background. And he's like, you know, it's weird because I, I really thought that I don't like religious people. But but I love you guys, you know, <laughs> him and, and, and me and a few of the other religious guys in the team are very, very close. And he's like, you know, it's really just the media that's pumping a lot of, like, poison and strife into the uh, population. And it's just not true. And so when I'm here with everybody, we're, like, we're brothers. And the craziest thing, actually, is, like, a few guys in my in my pluga, they were talking about how they would be, how they were doing, how they were mafaginim about the reform. They were, like, uh, protesting. Yeah. Which is very funny, because I come from a much more uh, conservative house. And, uh like we are not really fans of the of the left protesters. It's just not our view. And uh here they are, like that they were very big into it and we just don't care. We're gonna risk our lives together and we'll share each other's food no matter how much it is, you know what I mean? And we're literally brothers who don't agree about politics and stuff and we just don't care.
0: Um Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. So wow. I'm definitely so so you spent yeah, a you spent a, a month you spent a week with your teammates with your brothers in arms, despite having very different backgrounds. You spent a week and you're scouring the south and you're looking for any infiltrators. Is there anything about that experience you want to share with us before we get to the waiting period?
1: right so first of all, just booms all the time all the time booms and uh most of them were from our side bombing them uh but plenty of them were of them were then bombing us. A lot of times we were able to see in the night sky, the iron dome, just shooting down the rockets. Like I just, I was just used to it. Like we would just sit there and watch it. And uh, it's, it's interesting because like as a civilian, you hear a, a siren, you run for a shelter. Well, I, we didn't have a shelter. <laughs> so you just, you, you, there's nothing to do. And, and my personal experience, if I hadn't spent the time that I did in Nash, if I haven't done the work that I've done before this, in, in regards to Amuna and what I believe to be true in reality, I don't know how other people would cope with this. You know, I've witnessed a million miracles since this whole thing has started. But to me, it's, it just makes sense. I I already know that, that God runs the world. Nevertheless, I've, I've been in situations where it could have been, it could have gone very, very differently and didn't, you know, and, uh, there's just booms all the time. And, but so they'll say, OK, we have we have intelligence that there's a, a group of terrorists in this and this place and we'll go run out looking for them. And then we'll, we'll come back and like we're always guarding. You don't you don't sleep very much. There was one night when we were out there and it rained and it rained. <laughs> we have no tent. We have no jacket. We have nothing. And uh, we're just so tired. I'm just like so tired. I'm in my vest. You sleep the best when you're in gear, by the way. When you have your vest and your backpack, that's when you get the best sleep because you're just like automatically tired. <laughs> you put on the uniform and the tiredness from the army just comes right back. But uh, I was sleeping and it starts to rain on me. And I'm like, oh, please, I shouldn't make it stop. <laughs> and uh, he did, but not quite yet. And so we just got rained on. And uh, that's like, OK, that's what we'll do. As as combat soldiers, we we believe in what we're doing. And rain is not going to stop us. You know, so if I have to sleep out in the rain, that's what I that's what I'm going to do, because this is what I believe in. Um.
0: Wow, amazing. So from
1: Yachini, we were there for a week. They took us to um, an urban training facility called Mala. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It was right next to Mala. It was sailing right next to Mala. Mala is the biggest urban uh, warfare training facility, I think, in the world. I think. Ask uh, Rabbi Google.
0: And that—that uh, that is where? That's also in the south?
1: In the south, yeah, yeah. I've been in the south the whole time. So we did training. Basically, it was like we did training because the assumption is they're sending us in. You know, so we prepared, we did our training. And Uh, and it's there
0: there to to mimic the environment of of Gaza, right? That's the design. Mm -hmm. So, you know, tightly condensed buildings and, you know, all these angles and there could be snipers anywhere. and And they're trying to really mimic that.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So we did training over there. That was Shabbos. Like, there was no Shabbos. We trained the entire Shabbos all day. Um, and then more at night. And you are there for and, only uh, one day because
0: yeah. I assume there's all there's waves and waves of soldiers that have to go through there, right?
1: Right. That training place we were at for one day. Um it was either one day or a day and a half. I, I don't remember. Um because we did several other trainings in different places after that. Um in the end they didn't bring us into Gaza yet. They sent us to um a base on the northern Gaza border. Um and we were there, Is that we there for Zee three Keem? weeks. Is that Zikim? What's that? Is that Zikim? Yeah, right by Zikim, exactly. Yeah, that's
0: yeah. where they bring the new trainees um, or the new the new soldiers, right? They That's one of the first places that soldiers go? They're very
1: close. They're, yeah, there's a there's a base that's right across from my base. That's where a lot of the new soldiers go, depending on their unit. And the base that I was at, um, there were two terrorists outside that had been killed. And they were just... They just left them there for a while till they were able to, till they were able to come and check the bodies and make sure that they didn't have explosives on them and, uh, wait, and clear them wait, away. So when
0: you were there, there were just two corpses of terrorists just lying there. Yeah,
1: yeah, outside of the entrance to the base. Um, and and you saying that you saying they, they
0: didn't they didn't clear away the bodies because they were worried that they might be booby trapped.
1: Uh, they just didn't have time to do it yet. Oh, okay. We were so they yeah. were so overwhelmed, and they have to clear them, make sure that they were. That they didn't have any bombs on them or anything. Um, and it took time, like, like we got hit really hard. It took time till we were able to, to deal with it, with all the uh, injured and, you know, and we lost, we lost soldiers that uh, in that base that, that were attacked. The terrorists that came in on those, on those flying, um, the
0: paragliders, yeah. I don't know yeah. what they're called. paragliders. Yeah.
1: So they, two of them landed actually in the base. Um, although I don't think those, were able to kill anybody. I'm pretty sure they killed those terrorists really quickly. Uh, but they got attacked also from the ground. Um, this same base actually was attacked during Tsuketan. Terrorists came up from a tunnel right by the entrance to the base. And so this is where we were. And, like, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And and what's really difficult in terms of the tunnels, it could be anywhere at any time they could pop up. And um, we had an incident, actually, where we're in the base and... I had just finished guarding. I was on a three hour guarding shift and uh and then all of a sudden the speaker goes off <speaking in foreign language> <speaking in foreign language> which, which means an infiltration which is, uh, of
0: terrorists yeah. in, into the base
1: in the base, and we're like like, what like this is our home at the time, you know, like we live here we like and then like so we're all really quick in gear. I had barely even taken off my vest. I took off my vest a few minutes earlier. I throw my vest back on. We got our guns loaded. I have my handgun also on my leg. And we're literally in 360, like covering ourselves inside the base. And, and wait, this is uh, like.
0: But wait, how can a terrorist infiltrate the base? There's no wall? So
1: this is, there's, there's fences, but it's, uh, you know. It's porous. They can still do it, I guess. Yeah. Or, if they, or if they dig a tunnel and pop up in the inside. Um, this is when the, the Hamas terrorists came in from, from the sea and uh from by zikim uh in the end it turned out that there wasn't terrorists in the base but that siren went off twice two different times and my team basically we were responsible for the security of this base so we ended up having to, to search the whole base to make sure that it was clear and the biggest danger is what we call dutz, which is friendly fire that's like one of the most dangerous things when it comes to war and especially in this scenario because everybody's locked and loaded. Everybody's. Everybody in the base was behind some kind of cover with their gun pointing out, ready to shoot like anybody. And as we're walking by, we're like, Tal, Tal, don't shoot us. Please don't shoot us. <laughs> and uh, it's like nerve wracking a little bit because you're inside your base. You know, that's not where they're supposed to be. So anyway, that was that was a bit intense. Um, when we had first gotten to that base, actually, we would hear the, the red alert. And so at first we would, we would run to the shelter. But then it happens so often that, like... We and just, kind just of, for
0: clarification, the red alert... Just for clarification, the red alert is when there is a, a projectile, a rocket coming from Gaza. So it's a right. blaring so siren. Alert.
1: So we have actually two different alerts on the base. We have purple rain and uh, red alert. Purple rain is when there's a rocket or a mortar that's flying over the base that might get shot down over the base. And then it could fall on us. And red alert means it's, it's going to land on the base or, or really close to us, basically. Um, you think because Hamas so the, was deliberately
0: targeting that base.
1: Um, they were targeting every base. So right, right. anything They can. Um, So we, we, we had these alarms just all the time, all the time. Uh, like, but, but you can't stay in, even though you're un, you're in a high stress situation, you can't stay in stress for that long, you know? So you kind of, get used to it. It's weird, but you kind of get used to your life being in danger all the time. Um And, and you kind of have to do that switch. So my guys and I were just talking about this the other day, how we, we've been trained, that was part of our training to do that switch from zero to a hundred in a split second, you know, to be very calm to then very not calm, you know, and, and whatever you got to do, you, you, that's what you're going to do. But what I, what I had to learn here was to do the switch from a hundred back to zero very quickly that was something that we weren't used to. Like, let's say you had an arrest or you had whatever, an attack, whatever it was that you had to deal with. So you respond very quickly, but then it takes time to calm down after that. And over here, it's, just, it's zero to hundred, hundred back to zero. <laughs> wow. And, uh, like that all the time, which is probably not healthy, but like <laughs> war seldom like, is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll be like chilling with coffee and then, and then <sighs> some kind of an event, uh, red alert, whatever it is, we go running then it's over. We go back, all right guys, another round of coffee. Anyway, where were we? Back to the card game, whatever it was, <laughs> you know. And uh, even inside Gaza it was like this by the way. Um, because you just you just can't be on your toes for that long. So you have like you're, you're 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 definitely more uh more alert than you would be, you know, in civilian life or outside of Gaza, but but you're when you're super uh the, that that doesn't last. So you have to be very careful to find that balance of being uh, aware and sharp enough without uh, tiring yourself. You're not getting
0: worn out, yeah, because you know you can't be at a yeah. hundred at a hundred miles an hour for you know months and months on end. Wow! So you spent right, you spent right. you said three weeks in that base.
1: So yeah, we were there for three weeks, and uh, during that time we did all kinds of missions. Uh, missions in the base the or or the border? Yeah on the border yeah um, we actually the the my, my unit actually does explosives and so they did we they did find um, some kind of weapons on the terrorists explosives blow it up.
0: You, you mean explosives you, you diffuse them you don't create them right? no, i set
1: them I blow, I blow them up
0: yeah sap them
1: i I, 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 don't, I don't i don't defuse them i i make them go boom <laughs> so the sappers came the sappers actually put the uh they they were the ones who like set the explosives for the uh for that they were the ones who got the um w- the weapons from the terrorist body and then i blew them up which was pretty cool
0: and what do you do and, How you, uh, you, you just how does that work you send like oh, a yeah. robot
1: no, oh no. So they uh, for, for for them to clear the bodies that was like that's their specialty. Um, to
0: clear the bodies without triggering, play. without triggering, right? That's yeah. What yeah, yeah.
1: And then we place a charge on the on the weapon or the explosive, whatever it is they have. Then we go to a safe distance, and then we uh, count down, and then we make it go boom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you remotely, uh, uh, you remotely uh, trigger it. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, it's like it's
1: got like a wire. There's different. There's different mecha- uh, mechanisms to um, to to um, initiate the explosion. Hmm. And if I'm like all ADD, just let me know. No,
0: I love know. it. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm just thinking about these uh, these weapons charges going off. I, I guess yeah, <laughs> you yeah, say it have, goes uh, boom. It sounds yeah. like maybe if war isn't fun, it's not glamorous. Maybe they're they're little little moments of no, uh, fun dazzle. <laughs> <fun> moments. <laughs> Definitely
1: are. We had oh man, we had one mission actually um, about two weeks ago where we had placed um, like 110 anti tank mines in a building to blow it up. And um, but these are anti tank so mines
0: cool. that you collected from,
1: from the army has them. Yeah. The army has them, and they like they the army supplied us with them. It wasn't like we didn't like dig them out of the ground. Um it's very cool the difference in the sound of speed and the sound of and the sp- the speed of sound and the speed of light. Um with bullets or with with rockets shot down, you can see this very clearly. You'll see it get shot down and it's a good couple seconds till you hear the boom. So 110 or so mines. We took a nice distance and it's at, it was basically nighttime and they count down, they press the trigger, and all of a sudden, and it was completely silent, all of a sudden, this huge building just turned into this black cloud with a bunch of glowing orange embers, like in a bonfire, but all over it. And, and it was amazing. It was just like, boom, immediate. And then like two seconds later, boom, <laughs> and the ground shook and the, the dogs like got like jumped. There were a bunch of Gazan dogs that, that we adopted, basically.
0: These are, um, Ga- you, say, you said Gazan dogs?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dogs from there that we actually adopted them. Like people actually adopted them. They were with us for for a month there. Uh, and, and they cleave
0: to you because either their owners are dead yeah. or because you give them food or whatever.
1: I'm not even sure. I was. We were surprised. We thought that they would be more aggressive, but uh, I mean, we're we're nice to the dogs, and uh, they would be they would guard with us, which was really nice for us because we'd be guarding, and it's very dark. And even though I have like my night scope. Um, I don't see everything all the time and I'd be guarding with my friend. The dog would just be sitting by our feet and the dog would, would, you know, stick its ears up and then start barking. And then my friend and I would both check in our scopes to see what it's barking at. It was usually another dog, Mm -hmm. but it was real nice to have that set of ears with us. Mm. Um, there was a cat that would just come and hop on your lap the whole (laughs) garden, you know, and my friend actually adopted it. That's nice. And so, yeah,
0: so, so you spend three weeks on the base and you're going to all these missions on the north side of Gaza. So so the Gaza Strip to the north.
1: At that time, yes. Yeah, yes.
0: And yeah. then you made the little turnaround to actually go in. Tell us about what it was like to, to right. enter Gaza.
1: So in in war there's Uncertainty. The only Uncertainty. thing that's certain is that nothing is certain. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing certain is that nothing is certain. Everything changes so quickly. And um so basically they say that we're being switched. A unit came, switched us out. We then went to a different base. It's actually the base where we all did our training. Um, and we did more training over there, preparing, because it seems that we were getting ready to go in. Um, so we had about three days of training. My little brother, David, actually drove out to me and, uh, and visited me while I was on that base. And we hung out for a few hours because... That was the last time we were going to see each other for an unknown amount of time. And, uh, and it was pretty clear that I was, I was going to go into Gaza. So we got to utilize that time together and it was really nice. Um, while we were down there, people would drive, people drive. There's a kid, actually, his name is Menashe, and, uh, I became friends with him. He and other guys spent the last month and a half or so driving all over the country, bringing donations to soldiers he he got me bulletproof plates cuz we were missing bulletproof plates and vests and um, thermals and food and batteries and just anything you could think of he was he was there i called him up and I'm like listen i need like 50 tents he's like give me an hour <laughs> wow and uh, they were just hustling nonstop they were it was amazing it was really amazing cuz you
0: know here in more. america we we got all sorts of appeals for all these all these things that the soldiers need And, uh, you know, I guess the, the army doesn't have enough or doesn't supply everything that you actually need. They have maybe I guess a a more bare minimum. Is that, is that what it, is that what
1: it is? Um, well, unfortunately the stuff that you guys sent was very much needed and is, and is very much appreciated. So whoever's listening, I I wanted to personally thank you for, for everything, for all of your support, because it really, it made made a, it made a very big difference for us. Not just knowing that you, that other people care who aren't here, because that's the message that you're sending also. It's not just the food or the tent or the gear. It's sending, it's sending your love. It's sending your support. And and it's uh, reinforcing the fact that we are amechar belevechad. And that really means a great deal because it just kind of reminds us of what we're fighting for. And uh, when you're out there and you're tired and your life's in danger and the conditions aren't always great. And, uh, well, it's hard. These reminders give us quach. So every time we got a care package, every time a civilian came... It 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 gave us it lifted our spirits. It gave us new quah. Um There was actually one time I'm just going to go a, a sidetrack. But there was one time when we were in Yachini out there in the shetah, we were pretty much living inside of like a bush for a week. And uh the Nanas guys drove by with their van with the music blasting, and they had no idea where we were. They knew that we were there somewhere, so they just drove down the road with the music playing <laughs> so that we'd hear it, and we did. Uh, they actually found us and they came and gave us a bunch of nanach kipas and gas with us and stuff. And t- 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 <laughs> but everyone, great.
0: everyone ultimately got everything that they needed. Is that right? Before you went in,
1: before we went in, yeah. Before we went in, yeah. Although it was a bit of a roller coaster. I don't wanna. I don't wanna like trash talk the army or anything, because um, everybody it was just. It was a big blow, you know, from the October seventh. But um, in the beginning, we were sorely lacking gear. That's the truth. Basically, all the mandatory conscripts, they have very good gear. The army really supplies for them. But they didn't quite have enough for all the miluimnikim for the reserve soldiers. Um, they ha- they It's not that they didn't have. It's what they had wasn't very good. Um, it was old gear. It was gear that we would have used many years ago. And uh, if it was many years ago, we wouldn't have complained because that's just what it is. But nowadays, when there's much, much better gear, it's important to have it. Uh, combat is it's it's, it's it's very much like Gemara, actually. You're, you're, every detail counts. Every detail matters. We train and train and train because we are trying to maximize the chances of succeeding in our mission and minimize the chances of us failing or get from getting injured or killed. And everything matters from when you're shooting your gun. Is your elbow out or is your elbow in? Make yourself a smaller target. Every tiny detail. So the better the gear, the, the better you'll be able to fight. And um, so once we got better vests and better helmets... It changed the game for us. It really changed the game for us. And uh and in the end of the day, the gear, this is really our lives. If a soldier is uh not able to see well because his helmet's not sitting on his face, well he not he may not be the one to to shoot first. And that might be the difference between life and death, you know. So all the gear and all the money and everything that people contributed literally, literally saved lives.
0: Amazing. And um, and it really was a mobilization across the oh, board. Yeah. You know, in every community, uh, you know, on the podcast we spoke about it a few times. But so many friends of mine, so many different organizations that we are familiar with, you know, it was unbelievable the outpouring of, of support. So you have all your gear. We're ready to go. Tell us about what it's like to enter Gaza.
1: Okay. So <laughs> entering Gaza, there's something called the Shetach kinus which is like the the gathering. The staging, maybe the staging. The, the
0: staging ground. Huh? Maybe it's called staging I guess ground? I, yeah. I don't
1: know. I don't know what it is in English. But that's where we all uh, meet up right before we go in, and so we go there on Friday night, and and. They're like, okay, we're going we're going in and like Shabbos morning, early in the morning and then Shabbos morning comes. Like, not yet, soon, soon, soon. <laughs> and then uh, we, um, they go, okay, guys, this is it. This is time. We have all these speeches. The Magad gave a speech. The Mempei gave a speech. We sang Atikva. Everybody's ready to go. We get our vests on. We get our backpacks on. Like we got these huge uh, backpacks with with all our... Gear and, and it's a lot of weight. We're standing in uh, in formation, and we start walking. We're like, "That's it. We're going in." And as you walk, there's these officers that ask for your name and your uh, military ID number, and they write you down. They took pictures of us, basically, and and we start walking, and uh, we start walking a few feet, then we stop, and then we walk a few feet, then we stop. And now we don't all have uh, walkie talkies, so we don't really know what's going on. We're just following the guy in front of us, essentially. And uh, we walk, we stop and wait. And this happens a few more times after. And then we we end up waiting for quite a while, like an hour. And then like, all right, guys, it's canceled. We're not going in now. (laughs) We we go, okay. We walk back uh, 200 meters, however far we walked. And some of the other guys, we were actually in the back. Some of the guys had walked already like to the border and then came back.
0: This um, is an enormous column, enormous column of infantrymen just all walking from the base, which is, I don't know, a few miles away from the border, maybe.
1: It was about a, I think it was about a kilometer maybe about a kilometer so
0: it's very close maybe, to maybe,
1: maybe maybe a bit less even
0: wow so you're right uh, on the border and now okay turn around let's go walk back home
1: <laughs> we walk back and they're like yep I don't know what's going on there's some kind of misunderstanding and we're like okay so we're just waiting now I didn't get excited because I knew about this I knew that this happens um a friend of mine in my team his brother was in suketan and he said that they they were like they're going in they're not going in they're going in they're not going in
0: well, and, is it possible is that this them. is that this is a deception, where where you want to confuse the enemy, that the enemy doesn't know where you're coming in from? I, I imagine uh, there's some I something to that. Just poor communication, it's a little dysfunction.
1: It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's this. There's so, it's war is just so crazy. There's so much going on at one time. Um, in the end, we ended up sleeping at the Shetach Kinus that night, Shabbos night, and uh, we basically got rained on, just. Just poured on us. And uh, we actually had sleeping bags. They got us sleeping bags very late. Like it was late by the time they got them to us. Um, and it just was raining on us in our sleeping bag. And <laughs> there's nothing you could do. Like I'm just like I'm so tired. I'm like I'm not getting out of the sleeping bag. <laughs> and I tried to find like slightly dry parts of the bag <laughs> to sleep in. But anyway, the next day we go back to, uh, to our base. And they say, okay, guys, the latest is that Tuesday we're supposed to go in. Tuesday. This is on Sunday morning. So I speak to my rabbi, Rabbi Edlinger, who uh, who I'm very close with. Who really him and his kids and the Rebbitzin were in touch with me probably every day that they could. Um, they, they 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 sent care packages to us. They davened for us. The kids made drawings for us. Like I, I'm I can't express enough appreciation towards them. And uh, and I just knew that every second of the day they're davening for us. Um, Anyway, so I tell him and my brother, I'm like and my dad, I'm like, listen, we're going in on Tuesday, that's what they say. And uh they're like, Okay. And then a few hours later they're like, Okay, surprise, we're going in tonight. And uh so bam, Sunday night. We go back to Shetach Kinus, right where we were, we got all our gear, and uh this time it took a lot less time. We put our backpacks on, cross the border and uh and
0: again the border the border wall is still walking. open from the infiltration?
1: Yeah. Uh, or they they made a new I, opening. I don't know. It's a, it's a big opening. It could be they opened it more since then. Um now when it when it comes to combat soldiers and especially when we're walking or when we when we're doing anything really, it's very quiet. There's no talking basically. So you cross like we're joking around with each other and and the minute we get to the fence and cross, silence. And uh, something that's very cool is like, you could have combat soldiers and we're, we're essentially still kids, you know, you could be 18, you could be 25. And a lot of my friends are big jokesters and we all, we're, we're a bunch of guys, we have a good time. And then when we're in the field, silence, everybody's aiming, everybody's looking for where a threat can be. Everybody knows what he's supposed to do. and uh, And it's very organic, our team. And it feels very good to be a part of this. We cross the border. We start walking. We got our bags on our backs, our bulletproof vest, all our bull- all our magazines. We've got grenades, a bullet in the chamber, and everybody's just looking. Where is the terrorist going to pop out from? And uh, and we walked. It was a few kilometers in, not too far. And um, there's just booms all the time, but we're pretty much used to that already. At this point, it's been already a month, and there's just booms all the time and gunshots in the distance. But like this is already second nature to us after the last month because because last three weeks we were on the border and before that we were also we were by Yachini, we, we were not far um gunshots everywhere and uh we walk into Gaza and the ground is kind of like sandy it's kind of like sand sand slash dirt and uh piles of rubble and garbage everywhere, just like garbage at first we walk past a bunch of garbage there's something called a Mizbalan, where the arabs what they do is they don't they don't use like a dump i guess like we did they burn their garbage in the in this big thing called the Mizbala. it's like it's like a big mound of dirt and that's where they burn the garbage and we get to our mignan uh, which is the, i don't know how i say that exactly but it's where we are camped out like encampment i guess and um we switched the soldiers that were there the soldiers that were there just looked exhausted they, they, uh, they were covered in pudra. Pudra is basically dirt that or sand that's been very finely ground up by tanks and other armored vehicles. And it's like very powdery dirt and it just gets everywhere. And, uh, you could actually have it, like you could step in it, not realizing dirt, you could sink all the way down and like to your knee. Cause it's like powder. Um, it happened to me, there was one of my friends from my issue of, I see there and it's like really nice. Like, Hey, you give him a big hug. And it's like, we're friends from home and we're both soldiers here inside Gaza. A guy walks over to me. I look up and I see it's my it's my um it's my um Rosh Tevit of my of my team in Hatsala for the old city. <laughs> he was there and I had switched him. And uh
0: how long have they been there anyway, for?
1: They had been there for two weeks. And uh we had just switched them everything it's so cool how everything it felt so foreign and then it became home quite quickly uh we moved to several different encampments and built new ones and improved upon them every time we go there we make the uh, guarding stations better and fill sacks of sand but um and we did a bunch of missions we would go take over houses and stuff and um we we got um there was a tunnel, a pier, a pier is like the entrance to a tunnel, not far from us. And since we're the guys who do the explosives, um, some guys from my team went over there and they blew it up basically. Um, we basically, it was a, a bunch of olive fields where we were a lot of olive fields and, uh, and houses. And it does not look like that now. One of my friends found a picture from Google images and sent it to me of the neighborhood we were in. And I, I couldn't even believe it. It's just War is just so destructive. I, I Several times I said to my friends as we're sitting there looking out, I'm like, I can't believe it. I just can't. I just can't comprehend how these people, all they cared about was to kill Jews, even though it meant their own destruction. It's 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 incomprehensible to me, like houses that are rubble everywhere. Like I could tell that it was a house, but now it's just a pile of steel and concrete and I, I saw these just mounds of, of rubble. I saw a sideways car inside upside down trees. And it was just total destruction. And it's so crazy because it doesn't have to be this way. But, uh well, yeah, a bunch of destroyed houses. And uh, we, we, we took over several houses and we had to clear a bunch of houses. One of them that we were in, it was wild because I could see kids' toys, children's toys, children's clothing all over the place i mean the houses are first of all there's no like all the glass is broken everything everything's broken (laughs) and bullet holes everywhere bullet holes and uh bullet shells all over the place and the floor like you couldn't even see the floor there was just stuff all over the floor and uh this was kind of wild but like my friends and i were in this house for a while and we found a photo album in the house and we sat there and went through this photo album and it was just it was so weird because in this house i was like it looked like a very loving house with a bunch of kids in it like there was like a big doll house in the corner and it was colorful and i'm like i was like praying that we would find weapons or something that ties them to Hamas, so that i wouldn't feel as bad about being in this house so in the uh, in the photo album we had a family picture with the Hamas flag and okay. they had a picture of our fat hanging so I'm like okay we're good. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> All the guilt melted away. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. A, a different house which we actually stayed in for a while was a Hamas terrorist house. We took over the house. We found explosives inside the house under the, the stairs. Um it's actually in the news. You might even see me I spoke to the uh to some of the news reporters, but there were flamers and bombs inside the house. We found grenades inside the bedroom. Like there was like one of the kids' rooms, the parents' room with a crib in the room, and grenades in, in the clothing drawer right near the crib. And w- this was, just, was
0: it there? Do you think it was there to like booby trap uh, the Israelis? No, it was, it was, just, it was the, a it good place to
1: to even. There were his grenades. There were the terrorist grenades who had to run away, I guess. Um, we found part of an AK-47 there, and it's like, and in, in 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 one of the rooms, I found a bunch of books um, that he was apparently studying law. And it's just like this guy is a lawyer and a Hamas terrorist. What in the wow. what in the world? Wow. Like there was a tuudat um, which is basically it means that somebody in his family had been a, a martyr, and they get a special um, like a tuudat.
0: A certificate.
1: Help me out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they get like a it's like a special plaque, and, and, and they get they get a, they they get a
0: stipend, right? They get a stipend.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I've seen this actually in many houses that I did arrests in in the in the Shomron and in the Gush. I've seen this hanging in houses. Um, it'll be a picture of of usually about a teenager or a guy in his twenties, and he's got like a band around his forehead with Arabic writing on it, and uh, usually an M sixteen, and he's standing by like a Hamas flag, and uh, he was like a, a martyr, and they celebrate this, which is yeah, crazy, totally wild. <laughs> wow. Um, so inside Gaza back to the story a little bit where we spent most of our time we spent some time in the houses uh, where we would take take over a house and and live there for a little and while
0: are and, you seeing are as, you seeing you know the population like I know most of the population went south but you're at the southern right. point so so are you seeing population are, are any houses occupied are, are you seeing the flow of the civilians allegedly at least? Uh, going south on the what the Al Saladin Road is that right? Uh, you know, traveling south for a few hours a day. So, so what is so, your interactions with the local populace?
1: So the local population are not allowed to be there. It's an active war zone. I like guess they're there, they will be killed either on purpose or by accident. It, it is very dangerous. Um, they all have to evacuate. So there's nobody there. Hopefully, nobody there. If anybody's there, they're a terrorist. and we're gonna shoot them. And. Uh, there's a road that um, goes from north to south. That's the humanitarian road, which was which was right by us, and I was able to see it with my binoculars, um, and cars all the time driving up and down, and people trying to hitchhike, groups of people trying to hitchhike to get. Wait, but cars south.
0: are going up north and south.
1: Probably up north to pick people up and bring them back south, is my guess. Yeah,
0: but at, at but that yeah. point, has had Israel conquered or captured that road? So. Did you have like a chokehold on that quite yet, or not? Not yet. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. We controlled the road. Um, but I would see, I would see the civilians. And I'm just imagining that these people are hearing bullets and tanks and all day. And uh, we had some incidents where civilians actually came around where we were, and that was like Hamas had sent people to do it. Um, especially during the ceasefire. During the ceasefire, Hamas told people to go back north because that would really complicate things for us. Um, So we had to really push them back, and we—I'm trying to think uh, like in chronological order, but it's just everything is (laughs) so—it's
0: all mixed together. Tell me, are 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 the soldiers? Are they scared? Is there trauma? Do you have people that are just cowering in fear, or everyone—at least the ones that you encountered—are just they're okay? You know, they're okay. They're tough. They're men. They're fighters.
1: It's important to understand that we that there are soldiers that are much deeper in that are in the more urban areas, and that's much more close quarters and much more dangerous uh and where I was is more of an open area um it's more like open field with a bunch of houses, but it's not like the the close quarters um areas and the guys that are deep in there much harder to hear from them and they're they are the mandatory conscripts really that are in the most dangerous areas um we weren't, you know, in constant fear. We're, we're very, I mean, first of all, you kind of make yourself comfortable where you are. You kind of get used to the fact that you're in Gaza and that there's gunshots and bombs all the time. <laughs> like, like when there was a particularly loud or close boom, so then we'd be like, yo, and then we'd just go back to chilling, kind of, you know? But, um, there was actually, there were times, like, there was one time, um, I don't know how to accurately describe this sound, but the sound that a bullet makes as it whizzes past your head is uh, extremely disturbing. To be honest, it, it's a nice sa- sounding sound if you listen to it with headphones. <laughs> but uh, I was, I was—it's like a mosquito
0: bothering you at night, like a whizzing sound.
1: It's kind of like a, <laughs> <laughs> um, all of a sudden, I I hear like automatic. Gunshots, and like when they're in the distance, it's more of a pop, pop, pop. But when they're near you, it makes that whistling sound, and I hear it right over my head. And I and I ducked down, and I, and I literally said out loud, "I'm like, dude, stop!" <laughs> I don't know who the dude is that I was talking to, but it was just, it was like, it was. Very <laughs> Wait, and, and
0: you were you were you by yourself. You're by yourself. You're on the no, open no, field. Uh,
1: I mean, there were other people near me, and and they all ducked down trying to figure out what happened. What happened was, um, the the team next to us had been shot at with an rpg and then they the terrorists opened fire on them with an ak47 and uh, and bullets started flying all over our heads either from our own people or from the terrorists i don't know who it was uh, cuz there was a whole firefight and this is this is like 100 100 meters away from us maybe um, and and what's crazy is like they shot the rpg at them it could have been at us we were we were right next to them you know and there were mortars I'm telling you, I witnessed, I witnessed constant miracles, you know, uh, mortars that fell just too close for comfort in between, like like really right next to us, which actually very recently, actually this was a few days ago where, where it really shook me a little bit where I was guarding with a friend of mine and we were actually talking about that time when the bullets had flown over our head and then all of a sudden we hear, boom, and a mortar bomb landed like 50, 50 meters in front of me, maybe 50 meters in front of me. And just a huge boom and a big pillar of smoke rose up. And then right after another, ee, thump, where another one landed, but didn't explode. And then another one landed and exploded. And we're like, dude, let's get out of here. And like, we like moved down from where we were guarding because we just felt too exposed. But there was nowhere to go. It was like a red alarm, a red alert. But there, there is no red alert. There's no sirens and, and there's no bomb shelters. So there are bombs blowing up right in front of my face and there's nowhere for me to go. And uh there's this there's this fear inside of you. It's like it's like a primal fear, primitive fear, and uh, and I had to really tap into my own imuna that I had worked on previously, and I had to remind myself that there's an infinite conscious source to my existence who determines when I live and die. He the fact that I exist Every second is because he is, mm-hmm. he is every day renewing creation. And so I exist now because he's making me exist. You know, and, uh, and that gives me a sense of comfort because you kind of, um, relinquish control essentially, the illusion of control. We are not in control. If there's anything that this war is teaching us is that as, as strong as, as the IDF is, one of the best armies in the whole world, they they managed to do the most horrific attack that we've seen since the holocaust you know 2 years ago a tiny little virus shut down the world for 2 years like we are not in control we have to remember that and uh humility is key you know something that i that i've realized is that when i'm humbled when somebody is humble because they realize that there that there's a real king that we are that we are subservient to, so to speak. That we are here because of because of because of Hashem's uh, um, generosity. Generosity isn't even the word, but God's love is the source of my existence. Now, that being said, that means that I'm not the source of my own existence. So, on one hand, it's very humbling, but on the other hand, against another human being, I know that he's also here because of. You know, because of God's love, so so it puts me very humble compared to to God, so to speak, and it also gives you a certain confidence because I'm here because the Master Creator and Sustainer of the universe wants me to be. Wow. I matter and I belong. You know. And do you get a uh, sense that back?
0: do you get a sense that the soldiers that don't have that same strong, uh, emuna faith background, they maybe struggle a little bit more with kind of putting themselves in the right context of, of how to how to process all of this? Or do you feel maybe the people in you know in, in the Fotshold that they have somewhat of a metamorphosis of a of a renaissance in, in faith?
1: I've definitely seen a spike in uh, in religiousness amongst the secular. Um I think a lot of them rely on cigarettes <laughs> and distractions. <laughs> um I wonder, I wonder what other people hold on to, what what it is that they, what what, what it seems that most of them have is, this is my home, this is my family that I'm protecting, and they're going to do that, and they're going to risk their lives for what they believe in, just like me. I just, I have a bit of an advantage knowing that we're being watched over, you know? My biggest fear really wasn't, God forbid, that I would die, you know? I have every intention of coming home, but my biggest fear is the people that, that I leave behind. You know, and I, and I, whenever I would speak to my mom on the phone, I would tell, I would remind her, I'd be like, but we know that God determines and, and we know that God is good based on honestly, simple logic of if God is infinite and lacking nothing, then our own existence is for us, is a gift, you know? And
0: you were able to speak to mom yeah. if from Gaza? I thought, so I thought there was no, there's I no phones able, there. This is
1: before, before this is before Gaza that I would have these conversations with her, but it did happen that three weeks in when I was in Gaza, I found somebody with a cell phone who probably wasn't supposed to have it. And uh, this was like seven minutes till Shabbos. And uh, I, I, I realized this person, not from my unit, had a cell phone. I, I asked them for their phone. I uh, found a little spot with um, with service. I called my dad. He didn't answer. I called my mom, and she didn't answer. I called her again, and then finally she answered. And uh, and I'm like, hey, it's me. I only have like 20 seconds and have a great Shabbos, and uh, oh no, I'm sorry. With my, I called my mom. She didn't answer. My dad did answer, and then my mom was right there. He put on speakerphone, and uh, just like the sound of their voice was like, it was like, it was like magic. It was, it was crazy, you know, like the, their excitement and surprise. They hadn't heard my voice in weeks, and they knew that I was on the inside. And uh, my dad got to give me a bracha five minutes to Shabbos, and uh, I'm just gonna ADHD, ADD a little bit, jumping back to what I had mentioned about the father saying goodbye to his son. So this, this, this happened on Sunday, my dad drove me to, um, drove me to, um, like a, a gas station where guys from my unit picked me up to bring me the rest of the way. Um, so he drove me there and as we said goodbye, he gave me a bracha and we, and we had that goodbye that, 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 that other father had where I saw it from a different perspective because it was me, you know, um, so anyway, he got to give me a breath over the phone. I got to speak to them and they got to hear that I'm okay. And uh, I got to like, you know, be energetic and be like, yeah, it's all good. We're chilling over here, you know. And uh, I think cause a lot of people imagine like war and Gaza, you know, people are imagining like, you know, Hamburger Hill kind of movie. And it's not entirely like that, depending on where you are. It's all the time. It's It's your life, you know, it's like. Crazy to think that two months ago I was trying to start college and stuff, and now I'm like making sure that my gun is clean and making sure that my guys are protected. From this angle, you know, it's like it's pretty wild. Um, I forgot your question. What did you ask me again? I got all distracted. <laughs> I,
0: I, I, I was. We we're talking about about how how the religious soldiers process what they're going through versus the non-religious or the more, I would say, the more evolving uh, religious, non-religious, uh, right. Uh, a okay. let, let me ask you a question. So you have a, a mortar that explodes fifty meters away from you. I I heard this is one of the things that I hear. Just the 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 kind of ideas that you pick up. Now one of the major innovations of the military was the coordination between the ground troops and the air force. And that the ground troops are able to call in an airstrike. So, are you able to do that? Like when there's a mortar that explodes, you're like, there must be someone, you know, within a certain distance away that's shooting it. Let's get a drone. Let's get, let you know, let's get some some sort of protection. Is that real or is that so
1: something that we? Yeah, so yeah, the, we we do that a lot actually. And uh, it's not so simple because where the mortar lands doesn't help me as much unless I see where it left from. Uh, But there was there was a time where we saw the rockets. I saw the rockets being shot into Israel like we saw them get shot. We had these little radios. It was very much like Yom Kippur War, Vietnam War. We're like everybody's got their mustaches because that was like a trend. And we're literally listening to this little radio with an antenna trying to get it in the right angle for to hear the station, you know. And uh, we would see the rockets get shot from Gaza into Israel and then we would hear them on the radio say the red alert for those places and we had, we had, you know so it actually happened that we saw them get sh- get shot out of uh wherever they were shot from and a friend of mine lifted up his compass and saw the um azimuth the coordinates it English, maybe the
0: coordinates the,
1: yeah yeah he saw he saw it was from 90 degrees or whatever it was and somebody from a different unit also did that and they triangulated where they were and blew them up from the sky wow which is like which it was not pre can And, and, and
0: how, soon af- it. how soon afterwards? Like, they, th- are there constantly jets they flying over?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's constant constant stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, something like that, that, that's not all the time that they were able to triangulate it. Um, but in terms of the airstrikes, those are happening all, like, depending on the day. Um, what's really cool is that I was actually in the middle of reading a book called All the Light We Cannot See. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful book, but it talks about triangulating using um, radios. And uh, that was exactly what we did just with uh, the compass.
0: Wow. Well, I I will tell you that if you ever do get a cell phone into Gaza, if you, I don't know if you're going in or not. And I guess you yourself don't know, right? You don't know if you're going back in or when you are. Is that right?
1: Right. As of right now, we're not supposed to, but it could change any minute. We're basically on call now. Um, But I actually bought a kosher phone. A phone, if I have service, I can bring it in there because there's no GPS, no internet.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I, I just – I bought it. Yeah. I just – I want you to, to listen to a podcast in Gaza. I want to be able to kind of say we have listeners in Gaza. <laughs> ah, nice,
1: nice. I, yes, I have a memory card on there. I can download a podcast. There
0: you go. There you go. So, uh, tell me more about what it's like um, in Gaza. So, so, you're in Gaza. You have these, you know, protected places, but – Shabbos is probably no Shabbos, right? You 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 have to do your mission. You have to do your duties on Shabbos. But do you have you know time to put on tefillin to daven a little bit? Do you have time for that? Um,
1: yeah. So I've been trying very hard. It's difficult. There were some days that I missed tefillin. I've made it almost every day, but there were some days that I missed. Um, most days you have time to daven. It depends on the day. Depends what you're doing. You know what I mean. Um, Shabbos is, is, is difficult because on one hand, you're in a situation, you're in a constant, um, situation of pikuach nefesh where you, where your life is, so to speak, in danger. And so you have, uh, you have to, um, break Shabbos. Um, the, the difficulty for me is where's the line? You know, I don't have my rabbis close by like I do at yeshiva where I could just ask them, you know, so it's like, yeah, this will, but is this necessary? Is it, should I even worry about it? You know, um, what 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 Rav Etlinger had told me that Rev. Berkowitz said so he actually called Rev. Berkowitz and asked him. Rev. Berkowitz said, "Just try to remember that it's Shabbos because it's second second us the all over the place." Mm. Um, we actually had a minion sometimes for Friday night for for davening. Um, we actually one of the minions. It was very cool where uh, some of the secular guys joined in, and uh, one of them he was just. He was so excited. He he was like it was the best Davening ever. And it was very cool because we make a minion of what we've got. So you got Sparti Ashkenazi together. And uh we were switching off with the Ashkenazi tunes, the Swardi tunes, the Ashkenazi songs, the Swardi songs. And uh it was a really nice mix. I that was that was my favorite Davening perhaps ever. Because it was just it was such a mix. And uh, also this guy was so excited that everybody was willing to do whatever it was that he wanted because... You know, he was he was more excited about the davening than we were even like we were excited, but he was really excited. And besides for that, though, you you're constantly doing Malacha. You have to use the night vision goggles and you have to use fire sometimes. And uh, yeah, but but you just got to remember that um, that that the God who told me to keep Shabbos also told me to break Shabbos when I have to, you know? Yeah. And that we're in, uh, Mesamech Mitzvah, where, yes. where the Jewish people are in danger. And so we have to stand up and fight. And yes. throughout history, this is, this is what we do. We are a nation who fight for what we believe and we fight for what's right, for the truth, for the objective truth. That's what we are meant to do in this world is represent the truth.
0: Tell me about the ceasefire. So you mentioned the ceasefire briefly. What was it like where you, you know, what were the rules and what was it like the tension on the ground when you have to kind of stop any fighting really right?
1: yeah, the ceasefire for us was great oh, it was so quiet it was just it was night it was the quietest it had been in in, in the previous month and a half because this, from the from the eighth of October we were hearing booms and bangs all day and all night, and then all all of a sudden, it was like quiet. It was funny because there was actually a drone flying above us, one of our own, uh, drone flying above us that was making a lot of noise at night. And like with the booms, I was able to sleep no problem. But this drone, I couldn't sleep. I had to put in my earplugs. <laughs> and, uh, also the stars, by the way, because there's no electricity down there, you could see the most beautiful view of the stars, um, which, which helped a lot with, with like, um, just sitting and contemplating, you know, speak to God as you're laying out there in Gaza, looking at the stars. Um, so the ceasefire was really, it was a bit of a break. On one hand, it, it's very mixed feelings. It was a break in terms of that it was quieter and we weren't, a, we weren't able to do a lot of missions that we maybe wanted to because we couldn't risk um, ruining the ceasefire. We were also like a ceasefire is bad because it means that they're restocking and they're just preparing to fight better. But at the same time, they're, they're letting, they're releasing, uh, captives. And that's the thing that's most important to us. Um, we would be crowding around the radio just waiting for them to say that they actually released them, that we've got them every day. We would like every day they're supposed to release. We were all sitting around the radio listening because like this is the thing that we care about most. Um, you see, when you're, when you're Jewish and especially when you're here in Israel, you, you really are one family. There, There, there's not a single person who's not connected to somebody who's been killed, injured, or captured by at least one, one mutual person, like doesn't exist in my, I have four friends who have been killed that I know about my, uh, one of the guys in my, in my unit, his wife's entire family were captured. And, uh, I'm like, I'm like to him. I'm like, when he told me this, I'm like, well, I'm like, how how are you doing? He's like, like, I'm okay. I'm here. I'm like, how's your wife? He's like, oh, she's a mess. Like I can't even imagine. I, I personally stayed away from any videos or pictures as much as I can. Um, anyway, I'm not on social media, um, and I really tried not to look at at anything um, because I have to function. You know, we're we're going to do what we have to do, and uh, when I would think about the people that are captured, I just I don't know I don't know how to handle myself. Like I don't know how, I don't know what to do. You know, and. When we're out getting rained on, I'm thinking, yeah, but they're, they're held prisoner by Hamas. I'll get rained on for a hundred years if it means getting, getting them back. Well, there's nowhere we won't go to get them back. There's, there's, there's nothing we wouldn't do. You know, it's a much, you know, bigger, more complex situation. You know, you got the political situation, the strategic situation, but boots on the ground. Every soldier is willing to do anything to get these people back. You know, it's so personal for me. I, I grew up in a house that lives and breathes like this. My my mom uh, especially has a very, very strong love and passion for the Jewish people. And in 2014, when the three boys were kidnapped um, and we were davening and davening until we got the news that they were actually killed. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget this. Basically, my brother and I were upstairs. And all of a sudden we hear from downstairs, we hear my, my mom start shrieking and, uh, and him and I ran downstairs. We're ready to kill somebody. We're like, I don't know who he is or how big he is, but he's going down. (laughs) And we run down there and there's nobody there attacking her. She was just sitting in front of the computer and she was hysterical crying beside herself. And I understood, I understood that this could only be one thing. And I understood that, that, that the boys unfortunately were killed. And, uh, so I give her a hug and I tried to comfort her, but she was, she was like in, in, inconsolable for, for, for kids that she had never met. And, uh, for me, it was very difficult to see my mom like this. So, uh, I had to walk outside. I walked outside. Oh, my neighbor came running in. She came running in crying hysterically. And then she started hugging my mom and I'm like, okay, good. I, I, I can go now. And I walk outside the house. I walk into the street and I hear from both sides of the street, from every window, that I walk past from every house that I walk past. I hear people crying out loud. Uh, And this is, I mean, this is like, this shook me to my core. You know, my Neshama was crying. People were crying from the depths of their soul for people they had never met. And uh, this is, this is something unique and extremely special amongst the Jewish people. Um, I I tell people, remember that you are part of a family, a family of 14 million, you know, and uh, unfortunately, Fortunately, in the worst times, we remember this. And I think that what we've really got to practice and work towards, strive towards, is to remember this in the good times, you know?
0: That was uh, amazing, uh, Yoshi. Um, Unbelievable. It's it's really, like you said, it's something to appreciate. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to have these terrible things and circumstances to awaken that, but... It's really something special to, to realize why, well, you know, that we're part of this nation, right? We're part of this people, this, this very, very large family. I want to end off maybe with kind of giving us your take of maybe the changes that you're seeing in the Israeli society. So we spoke about the, the idea of unity that maybe the media or politics that tries to divide us, you know, nonsense like this whole judicial reform and all that and the right and the left and most of it's nonsense. Of course, there's important things on the docket, but Ultimately, it's, you know, we're, we're a family and we sometimes forget that. And that's changing, or at least you're seeing change on that on that front. You know, I, I, I noticed just from my own anecdotal observation that there's a change in how people are talking. You know, before Rosh Hashanah, there was this terrible statement by the prime minister. And he walked it back, thankfully. But he was telling the Jews that wanted to go to Uman, don't go to Uman, because Hashem doesn't always protect us. Remember that... Uh, that statement that he made. Hashem didn't always protect us. That's what he said. And then he walked it back. But now I'm hearing, every time I listen to any, any you know, the the press conferences they do, it's Bezrat Hashem, with the help of Hashem, Zat Hashem. I'm hearing that a lot. So my question is, are you seeing that on the ground? We're, we're hearing that there's a huge demand for tefillin and tzitzis. So, you know, you spoke about your friend who joined the, the davening Friday night, your secular friend. And in general... You you mentioned a few times about how people are are connecting with their religion more. But how do you see the changing society, perhaps the evolving society, uh, during the war and after the war?
1: So the truth is, at least presently, I barely see society outside of the army. Um, I've left a total of like two times since the war started. I've barely, I remember the first time, so I went home two weeks after the whole thing started, and then I didn't go home for for five weeks later, um, which was only about a week ago. And it was really quite quite crazy when I when I got home and I see that there's barely any young men anywhere, and I see many many women with their kids, and they all have the same face that um, it portrays like. To me, I, what I'm reading on this face is that they're worried all the time about their husband, their brother, their father, whoever it is who's in the army. But they're also trying to be strong for the kids and take care of everything and and probably not burden the husband on whatever it is that they're going through. Um, and, and I saw this on a lot of people as I was walking by. And uh, there's a family, The, the their name is um, Dudu and Revital, who, when I made Aliyah, they lived in the same house, actually. We rented the upstairs and they rented the downstairs and we became very, very close. We're like, we're literally family. They had two kids when we moved in together, a two-year-old and a one-year-old. We lived in the same house for about seven years and then they moved a little bit down the road. And, uh, we we're extremely, extremely close. They had two kids while we were living in the same house. So their youngest, his name is Ido, he's about five years old now. And, um, Dudu's an officer in the army. So I got home and Dudu was in, Dudu was in the army. I go over to their house and Ido just jumped on me and gave me a hug and he wouldn't let go. He's a kid with very high energy. This kid does not sit still ever, (laughs) but he, he wouldn't let go of me. He just, he just, he just stayed there on top of me. And, and I was just, I was speaking with Revital for a while and he just stayed, he just stayed right there on my lap. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let go. And, uh, I'm sure he missed me, but really he missed his father. You know, and, uh, and Dudu and I are best friends, basically. So um, in terms of society, I, I don't see it so much so far because I've been in the army. I haven't seen what it's like on the outside except for the brief, brief breaks when I had left. And I felt something different in the air. You know, I felt that there was much more unity. Um, I felt great appreciation from the people as I walked around in my uniform or with my gun um, my dad and I went to get food actually, before I came back to bathe, we got a nice steak. It was great. And, uh, as we're walking, we were in Renana, um, a guy sees me with my gun. He goes, Hey, you come take a shawarma. <laughs> he was just going to make me a shawarma cause he saw the gun. <laughs> and, um, people would, people just would, would, would stop and say, thank you. You know? And besides for that, I, I don't, I don't know so much cause I've been mm-hmm. in, I've been in it. Um, I'm a bit nervous cause tomorrow I'm supposed to go home until they call us back, which could be at any time. It could be in a day, it could be in a month. I have no idea. And I think it's going to be a bit weird that the war is going on and I'm not in it necessarily, you know? Um, but everybody has to do their part, whatever it is, wherever they are. So that's really, really important. Everybody, I think a lot of people imagine that like you have to be James Bond, you have to be Rambo, but, but that's not true. First of all, those people don't really exist. and, and, Every single person has his part to play. You know, if the chef doesn't make the food, the combat soldiers don't eat, you know?
0: The army marches on its stomach, they say.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I have gained so much weight from all the junk food <laughs> that they've sent us. <laughs> like, I've had two fish and cookies, like. And in terms of the lasting effects, I really hope so. I really hope that the, the unity will last and grow. I, I, I have my doubts uh, because of human nature, you know, it's much more comfortable to to not get along, it seems, especially with people that are different from you in some ways. And uh, I think that what it would require is a Kabbalah, essentially. Rav have and he comes to the Torah um, at the end of Rosh Hashanah, and he speaks to us. And there's two things that he mentions. Um, I've heard him speak twice so far. And he talks about, number one, is a Simei he really he implores us to take advantage of, us, of the 10 days of repentance. He says that the, the impact of those days is so significant, you could do enormous, enormous work and influence your future year in, in that time much more than other times of the year. An analogy that he gives is, let's say, a crane is lowering one of those big uh, shipping containers. And while it's in the air, it weighs thousands of pounds, but while it's in the air hanging by the crane, you could actually move it. With one finger, even, by the way, you could push it and, and move the, uh, the container. Once it lands on the ground, it's going to be very difficult to move. The 10 days of repentance are while the crane is holding it in the air for you to do work on yourself, to improve yourself. That's the time where you could do, where you can get the most bang for your buck. So he, he really encourages us to do this. The second thing he does, he tells us to take on a Kabbalah, take something upon yourself that you can do every single day. In five minutes or less
0: Like a resolution
1: and A resolution, exactly This is the thing that has changed my life Because I listened to him I took upon myself a Kabbalah You see, as, as the ten days of repentance are here And Rosh Hashanah And Yom Kippur You're at the spiritual peak of the year You've been working on yourself Working on your character traits Self-reflecting And, and then Rosh Hashanah You're, you're really into it 10 days of repentance. You're really trying to just keep the pedal to the metal and it's hard. And then Yom Kippur is the peak. And then after Yom Kippur ends, it's kind of like that New Year's resolution. It could either just go right out the window or you can maintain it. But the way to maintain it is by this Kabbalah every single day. You take upon yourself this resolution that you could do in five minutes or less that will tap you back into the state of mind that you were at the spiritual peak. For me, I think about some of the Yom Kippur Davening, and I, I I, miss I miss my closeness with God during that time. Um, it's kind of like a longing almost for another human being, because I, I felt closest to God during this time, and uh, I personally did a, a Tanis Debor on Yom Kippur, which I... Uh, a Tanis
0: Debor, which means that you, you're going to refrain from talking on Yom Kippur.
1: Right. So I did a Tanis Debor, which meant that I don't talk except for to a Hashem, basically. And for me, this was really it was really important um, because I, I was so focused on on just my on my relationship with Hashem, and it, it, it was it made Yom Kippur very very meaningful. And then taking upon yourself this resolution every time you do it, you want to ta- you want to be conscious of what you're doing every day of, of your life. Ideally, we strive for consciousness. Lev Dover, he talks about how every time you walk past the mezuzah, you kiss the mezuzah, you don't do it mindlessly. Remember what's written in the mezuzah. What does it say? What are we living for? What are we doing with our lives? And uh, every time I fulfill my Kabbalah that I took upon myself, I tap back into Yom Kippur. And it's been enormously impactful um, because you could, once the fast ends, so to speak, you could just jump back into old habits. But if you want to maintain the growth and continue with it, you have to constantly tap into it. So in terms of the unity in Israel and amongst the Jewish people, I, I, I encourage and I implore people to take upon themselves some kind of resolution, the Kabbalah, they could do in less than five minutes. What I recommend, and this is what I did, is, um, the, the laws of Shemir Salashim, of, of guarding your, guarding your speech. This is, uh, this, this is what speaks to me most. And, um, I, Took upon myself a Kabbalah a year ago to study um, five five minutes of Halacha, the one that I choose to do is Mitha Lashon um, every day. That was what I that was what I did, and I did it usually before bed. And then this past Rosh Hashanah, the Kabbalah I took on was the same thing, but before lunch. So I have it once before, like in the beginning of the day, once in the end of the day, twice a day to tap in, and it's it's so impactful. First of all, it helps with consistency. And it taps me back into when I look over and I see my Rebbeim davening. When when I'm in the deepest part of Esrei, on the holiest day, uh I tap back into that. And uh and it's it's extremely impactful. So in terms of the unity, I'm not sure what it is or how to get people to do it, but there has to be a consistent reminder, you know. Well Yoshi, I'll tell you
0: the uh the Jewish people are listening to the podcast. Not all of them, but a lot of them. <laughs> and this is a beautiful message that we should take this unity that we that we collectively as a nation have developed over the course of this this terrible conflict and spend five minutes a day to try to perpetuate that feeling. And I think your example is a beautiful example to avoid speaking negatively about another person, Lashon Ra, the evil talk. It's yeah. a beautiful thing because that fosters love. And, you know, there's an incredible book, as you know, A Lesson a Day, which was authored by your Rosh Rabbi Berkowitz. And that's yeah, a beautiful thing. There you go. There you go. It was in Gaza with, uh, with Yoshi. And uh, it's a beautiful <laughs> message to, to send to everyone. Get that book. It's, it's less than five minutes. And study on behalf of the Jewish people and the perpetuation of the unity that we developed. Uh, we should con- continue that, please God. Yosha, I want to encourage you and, and remind you that the whole nation's behind you. The whole people are behind you. We love you. We're appreciative of you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It was it was unbelievable. You were an absolute superstar. And uh I, we hope that you're safe, that all your friends are safe, everyone in the unit is safe, all of our soldiers are safe, and of course, the hostages. Um Yoshua Mordechai ben Shoshana Blima, that's your name. Uh, please God, everyone uh, will pray for you. Pray for your success, you and your brother David Israel. David Israel, and
1: my brother. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> Ben
0: Shoshana Blima. Everyone should be safe. Everyone should be strong. Everyone should be healthy. Everyone should come back uh, in one piece, in spirit and mind, in uh, body and soul. And may we uh, defeat our enemies, uproot Hamas, save the hostages, and hopefully uh, bring back uh, peace to our people and. Uh, only hear good news from our brethren.
1: Amen. I want to just share with you one one last tiny thing while we're talking about the Shemir HaSelashon is that the Chafetz Chaim in his Hakdamah, um, to say for Chafetz Chaim, he brings, I think, five proofs that, um, that Lashon Hara is the reason that we are still in exile and don't have the Bez Um And he encourages that Shmiras HaSelashon in guarding our tongue is the way that we rectify this. You see, every Tisha B'Av that we mourn the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, we're not just mourning that it was destroyed 1900 plus years ago, but we're mourning that it's been essentially re-destroyed every year, because the moment that we're worthy of it, it will be rebuilt immediately. And so, if it hasn't been rebuilt, it's as if it's destroyed again. The Chavetz brings simple logic that if it was destroyed because of sinas chinam, of baseless hatred, which is a result of lashon hara, of evil speech, then the only way to rectify this is by guarding our tongue. And this is valuable regardless of how religious somebody is or even if they're not Jewish. Um, I think that the when you meet somebody, you you kind of make a judgment of them quite quickly. And the, the quickest thing is when they talk. The first thing is how they look, how they present themselves. But once they talk, that's when you're able to really see who this person is. When somebody has refined their speech, you could very quickly see who you who you were dealing with. Um that's 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 got to be the thing that I look up to most about about my Rosh shiva, Rav Berkowitz. He's so careful about what he says, and I really try to mimic him and uh, and be thoughtful in the same way. So, through we will witness and bring the building of the third base of Mikdash and the coming of Mashiach.
0: Anyone who's listening to this, go get yourself the book. A lesson a day, you can read it in less than five minutes. And it goes through all the laws and all of the, of the lessons, really, of the Chafetz Chaim that he wrote about the Shemir Salash and it will change your life. I read it as well as you did, uh, Yoshi. And I love that clarion call. May we only hear good news from you, Yoshi. We hope to hear only good things to give us an update on how things uh, are going. Give the podcast an update. We'll do, a, please God, uh, another update. Thank you so much for all that you do on behalf of Am Israel. Am Israel Chai. It's alive, it's vibrant, and it's going to get stronger. Please, God, thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing your story with us. This was amazing. This was amazing. You were fantastic. This is your first episode. Please, God, many more.
1: <laughs> thank you so much, Okay,
0: God. take care, my dear. After we finished recording, Yoshi sent me a voice note And he's like, oh, I have this great story that I forgot to say. So I said, "We'll we'll add it to the podcast. So here is the voice note from Yoshi at the end of the podcast. And of course, my email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com.
1: There was actually um, one one story that I had forgotten to mention to you, but um, a guy had actually gotten shot right next to me. Um, He was about 10 feet away from me. Um, Oh, man, there's actually some really good stuff I forgot to mention to you, but that's okay, it's okay. Basically, there was a... uh, a weapons factory that, that would produce a lot of rockets that were sent over to Israel and uh, we got the privilege of blowing it up and uh, while we were there, so one of the guys actually got shot, But Hashem is okay uh, but he was basically 10 feet away from me, he got shot and then about, I don't know, a few minutes afterward we had to then run to, uh, to a different place um, where I actually had to run from this hole in the wall where he was shot from by a sniper across just open field, what we call Shetta hashmada, and uh, and take cover elsewhere, and <laughs> I get to the opening in the wall, and it's just like I'm about to run into Shetta hashmada with a sniper, and I I said I said out loud I said Hashem please protect me, and I ran out, and uh, there was some fear, but it was very mild, and and that was one of the moments where I really just. I just, I knew I know that, that God determines, and that was to me very comforting, and I, I am curious how my friends dealt with that moment, because they were they were definitely nervous, we all ran very fast during that uh, dilug, uh, but that was a very meaningful experience, I don't have meaningful mashmauti though, but it was it a was significant experience.